Welcome to the New Mana Podcast, an Arch KCK production. Welcome back to New Mana, your newest favorite Catholic podcast on the Holy Eucharist. My name is Lee McMahon, your host, and I serve as consultant for evangelization at the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas. But don't be fooled if you've got a pulse, this podcast is for you. If you are hungry for more, if you're fed up with the empty promises of the world, Jesus has more for you. We have been called to communion in Christ. We've been given the mission of bringing people to Jesus and bringing revival to the church. So our title, New Manna, comes from John 6:58. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Come on, Jesus. Jesus is the new manna. He is the bread of life, and he gives himself totally to us every single day in the Holy Eucharist. Really got an awesome episode for you today. Got a fellow convert in the house. Our guest today, Curtis Ketty. I just love that we share a very witty sense of humor. Mm. Semi-satirical, very satirical. A little dry. Very dry. Depends a lot on facial expressions. True. Which uh, puts our audience at a bit of a disadvantage today. Very big disadvantage. So good luck. Um, we've got this unlocked. So hey, first of all, want to say thank you to everybody out there who's left a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You're helping us get the word out that Jesus is alive, that he's about a good work, and that he is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. Because when you leave a review or rating, we're actually showing up higher on search results when people are looking for or browsing in categories pertaining to pertaining to faith. So just thanks for everybody out there who has done that. And if you haven't, guess what? There's still time. I saw, what was it, yesterday? I saw 27 reviews on Apple. I want to see 28 after this episode drops. So, Mm. yeah. But Curtis, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Yes. Great to have you on the blue couch in the orange room. Curtis, who is Curtis Ketty? Curtis Ketty is a man, child of God, a husband, a father of five little children. Um, I was born in Canada, but I was raised in Hong Kong Mm. and went to college and graduate school in California, and now I live in Kansas. It's so, a pretty natural progression, I'd say. And in just eight months, God willing, um, I may be ordained a permanent deacon in the Catholic Church. So Come on. I'm excited about that. You've got the days. Tell me the days. 249 days. Who's counting? What are you most excited for with respect to being um, ordained? Oh, I think what I'm most excited for is receiving all of those graces necessary to live out in my very body the servant mysteries of Christ so that people can encounter in me that kind of life of uh, humility and sacrifice. Yeah. That's, that's a, what I'm excited about. That's a great point. I Could you explain to everybody out there, like, what is a deacon? Like, I don't know, like, just people, like, what is a deacon? Oh, okay. So deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which sometimes gets translated as servant. Um, I've heard it translated as waiter before. Nice. Uh, if you ever worked at a restaurant, um, it's a little bit more than that though. Uh, it's, I like to think of it as a servant on the move, like an intermediary. Like, like if you imagine you're working at a restaurant and you have your tables and you have the kitchen and you're constantly going back and forth. You're a ta- you're a food runner. That's right. And in, in the case of the deacon... And in in my case, the permanent deacon, someone who will remain a deacon for their life and not then move on to the next degree of the priesthood, is that I go to the altar. I'm bound more closely to the altar where I can assist the priest in the sacrifice of the Mass. And then I take what I receive at the altar and I bring it to the people. So I'm a, a clergy who lives a lay life. So I go, go into the world. It's like a missionary bringing um, the graces of the altar into the world. And so then as I'm in the world and I'm next to the people who are suffering and serving them, I take what I receive from them and then I go and bring that to the altar. Mm. So I'm constantly moving back and forth. So whether I'm helping to prepare the gifts at Mass or I'm sitting at uh, someone's deathbed, it's all the same motion. Mm. So I'm a, like a go-between. You're, you're a go-between. I was just looking at the etymology of deacon, right? Mm. The diakonos, right? What does it mean? So dia meaning like to be set close to or 
against or like not in opposition, but like we hear about dialogue, mm-hmm. like two words next to one another. Yes. Diakonos, uh, the konos being like a hurry and this, the sense of from all sides are completely like kind of the sense of surrounding. So you are close to, you are next to all sides at all places. That's right. Next so. to everyone, but particularly a delegate or a herald, a messenger of the bishop. Mm. So I'm sent by the bishop to his flock and then sent by that flock back to the bishop. And we really have a threefold ministry as deacons, a ministry of the word, like we're prophets. You know, we proclaim the gospel at mass. We preach the truth wherever we are. Right. Uh, Ministry of the word, ministry of the altar. So we do um, assist in the liturgy, but then also ministry of charity. Sometimes we call it the altar of charity, where we live our lives self-sacrificially for those who are in need. And, and, most importantly, undergirding all of that, it's not so much what deacons do that define them, but who they are, that we are called to be sacramentally configured or shaped, changed by the sacrament of holy orders, that we become an uh, incidence of encounter. So people come and encounter Christ in a very specific way mm. through us. We become uh, incarnated, all of those— yeah mysteries of Christ the servant. Yeah. So people know a lot of saints out there. Yeah, there's lots. But what, like, who are some saints that weren't priests, that didn't live in a convent, Yeah. that were, like, deacons? Oh, man, there's some good ones. Come on, lean in. St. Lawrence. St. Lawrence. St. Lawrence was a deacon. He's he's famous for, um, uh, I think it was the, it was, it was Rome. I think it was Rome. <laughs> Definitely Rome. <laughs> you can you can cut out anything that I say that is no, wrong. You're doing great. But he was called to bring all of the treasures of the church and lay them before the feet of the like Roman literal governor. Literal money. Like yeah, the, the guy the wanted church money. Was, the church was rich. We want the money. So Saint Lawrence, who is by the way the patron saint of comedians and uh, chefs, as mm. you will find out in a moment, mm-hmm. he brings before the king or the governor or the Caesar or whatever the next day all of the poor. Of the church and says, "Here are the, the treasure of the church." This is the treasure of the church. Um, yeah, the governor was not amused, and ordered uh, Saint Lawrence to be martyred by being um, basically cooked on a grill, and that's where we have a apocryphal, legendary quip of Saint Lawrence that after he had been laying on this grill dying, he sp- had enough strength to say to the one who was killing him, "Turn me over. I'm done on this side." So. True story, August 10th, which is the date of um, St. Lawrence, mm-hmm. um, many people celebrate that by barbecuing. Nice. So, And I asked if that was appropriate, and I was told not only is it appropriate, it's tradition. It's encouraged, folks. <laughs> so, Wait, Who are some other big ones? Like, um, There is uh, some evidence that St. Francis of Assisi was a deacon, right. wasn't yeah. a priest, but there is um, historical evidence of him uh, proclaiming the gospel. Mm-hmm. So we know that if he's proclaiming the gospel and he's not a priest, he's likely a deacon. Right. Um, uh, yeah, those are two big famous ones that come to the top of my head. Yeah, and the Franciscans is one of the the cornerstone orders. And like, there's so many little sub-orders of Franciscans and, and offshoots of the Franciscans, but talk about just influence and, and, and sway there, like from a deacon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that St. Francis himself would be aghast that his order of poor little brothers was called the Franciscans. Mm, <laughs> I think yeah. that is the last thing that he ever wanted. He wanted yeah. humility, obscurity, yeah. poverty. Um, and so his legacy still lives on in right. the permanent diaconate for sure. Yeah. And I should say that all priests and bishops are also deacons. Mm. That doesn't go away right. when you're ordained a priest or a bishop. It's all united, and the, the diaconate is the foundation of holy orders. Yeah. Amen. Well, tell me about your story of falling in love with Christ, because I've heard it before, but a lot of our listeners get ready. It's, it's a beautiful story, but where did it start? What happened? <laughs> oh, man. Well, falling in love with Christ began from my very earliest years. Right. My dad um, was a pastor, in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, mm. sort of like the Methodist Church, sort of has like a, it's a branch of like the English Reformation, came out of like mm. Henry VIII and all that stuff. It's very different from Luther 
you'll notice that there's Protestants can be divided into two main groups, either you're English or German. Mm. I came from the English side. I find that important to say. Anyway, we were very charismatic. Okay. Um, and my grandfather on my mother's side was also a pastor. All my uncles were pastors. It was like the family business. And when I was nine, my parents um, felt called very strongly by God to uh, become missionaries. Uh, and even though no missionary organization would take them, they took it upon themselves, selling all of their possessions and just on their own dime, flying down to the Dominican Republic, which was sort of, I guess, uh, my dad's um, aunt had a house down there or something. I don't know why they decided to go to the Dominican Republic, mm. but they just went down there, found the poorest kids they could find on the beach, had those kids lead them to the slum, and just began preaching the gospel there. And as a kid, as a nine-year-old kid, um, the image of my parents um, in the middle of this slum preaching the gospel in English. They couldn't speak Spanish. Beautiful. So the kids didn't understand what my parents were saying, but my dad was drawing pictures, you know, these big mm -hmm. pictures on a big paper pad flung over a plywood door. And I remember my mom was telling us the story of the lost sheep, and everyone's just transfixed by these pictures. That uh, image, that memory in my mind uh, is impossible to get rid of. And so what my parents did there, and we were there for six months, and there was so much fruit that many missionary organizations then began clamoring to get my parents to work for them, work mm. with them. And that's when they moved to Hong Kong, where I grew up. But it didn't matter what they were doing. It was the like what the specific actions my parents are doing, the motivation, that like full-on... Um, like all in nature of their faith, like they were willing to follow Jesus anywhere and to give up everything to do it and to drag my brother and I, my younger brother and I, wherever God led them. Hmm. Um, from that time on, my dad was 32 till his death at 47. He never had a salary again. Hmm. We just lived on the support Providence. of others. So living in that um, environment where prayer... Scripture and just abandonment to Christ was the norm. Mm. Um, when I when I grew up and moved out, is it any wonder that when I sat down and think, what do I want to do with my life? I mean, it had been modeled for me. Here is the most important thing. Here is the most important person. And so, um, right. That's why I went and I studied. Uh, scripture and theology, and wanted to join the family business. So when were you you um, you were in the DR until nice the DR the DR I love I, it. I, I don't know about that's what we call it. Yeah, so the Dominican like, Republic. You know, you know the terminology. Right, right. So you were there until you were how old? Um, I was only there six months. So I was there when I was nine. So nine years old, and you moved to Hong Kong. Moved to Hong Kong. What was that like? Well, um, it was weird at first, but now. Uh, I mean, I think of it as home. It's like mm. my hometown. And uh, it's very crowded. And uh, you are absolutely, as an English speaker, and I'm a tall, skinny, pale Canadian, um, I just towered over everyone there. <laughs> I was like a, a blonde periscope in a sea of black right, hair. Right. Um, but you get used to it, and I, and I really loved the energy and the convenience of the city, all the, the cultures smashed together into this small space. Um, so I love Hong Kong. Um, and when I graduated college, I actually immediately moved back there and began working at an evangelical church as a director of music and liturgy, which began my journey to the Catholic Church. Mm. So you, you wanted to follow in your parents' footsteps, and you said join the family business, because it's not just your dad who's a pastor, right. who's a pastor, but your uncles and your grandpa. So, right. so what did you know? What were those like natural steps that you took to to go there? Right. Well, um, it's a little bit different depending on what denomination that you're in. At that point, my parents had kind of distanced themselves mm. from the denomination that they grew up in. They just wanted to be followers of Jesus. Mm. They're like, we don't want to be Pentecostals. Sure or Baptists, or Anglicans. We just want to be Christ followers, mm. you know, friends of Jesus. Sure. So they sort of eschewed any denominational affiliation. 
So by the time I went to college, I went to a non-denominational university in California, um, Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Biola. That was the original name. I think it's it's been over 100 years now, and it's quite a big and great liberal arts university. Um, and I, I got my degree in biblical studies, which is kind of like, you know, you need that foundation if you're going to go on into ministry, like an undergraduate degree. And uh, I, d- I wasn't ready to go to graduate school quite yet and get my MDiv, which is usually the next step, a master's in divinity. Um, I just wanted to get on with my life. I don't know if, yeah. if you're listening. I don't know if you've experienced this, but by the end of your college career, you're ready to get on with your life. <laughs> like, just let's get out Preach. of the dorms. Yep, come on. And let me get it back to real life. And by by that time, I also thought I knew everything, and I was eager to share my knowledge with the world. Yeah. So um, moved back to Hong Kong and got a job at a church and began to, you know, I thought I'll work at a church for a while, I'll be the music guy, and maybe then eventually I'll work my way up to be like a youth pastor and then maybe work my way up to be family pastor mm. and then associate pastor oh and finally— Senior pastor, you know, yeah. I mean, we don't have like um, bishops or anything in the same way. Right, no elders. Once you once you hit senior pastor, you've made it. You've arrived because, yeah, each church is its own entity, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, So that was those were the steps I was taking. It was right at the beginning of it all, and very cocky and. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. As in the words of Justin Timberlake, the all the all knowing and wise. if, is it really cocky if you know that it's true? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but as I discovered, there were some things I thought were true, which were not the whole truth. Yeah. Um, so actually, I'm at this church in Hong Kong, uh, cocky, thinking that I know. And I kind of um, begun, just dipped my toe in in some liturgical history. Yeah. You know, growing up, we were very charismatic and loose and all about innovation when we worshiped, it always had to be the new thing, right. sing a new song to the Lord, you know, um, or we would even at the charismatic church I was in, in high school and I was on the worship team. I sang, we would make up songs at Sunday church. Mm. We would just come up with it in the moment. We just like let the spirit lead us sure. and we would make up the songs that we were singing. So we wanted to be that fresh and new. Um, but I had started to dip my toe, like I said, into the liturgical tradition. And so here we are in Hong Kong. And I was so blown away by, like, the Anglican liturgy. And here I am in an evangelical church. Well, what was it about the Anglican liturgy that struck you? Well, um, it felt like it was bigger than me. Mm. You know, it was bigger than even now. Mm. It, it was it was, like, slightly deeper. I, I think I've been playing in the kiddie pool— and now I can't touch the bottom with my feet. And mm. I'm like, whoa, what's this? Mm, I see. It was just richer. And you just had a sense of history. Mm. Um, and this this sense of history, once you taste it, you want to taste more of it. Mm-hmm. And I want to be like, how far does this go? So when I'm te- I wanted to teach a class to my worship team. Um, I wanted to just help them taste this history. Why do we get together on Sundays and sing a happy, clappy song, followed by a slow song, followed by some prayer, they pass around an offering plate, have a, a, a guy talk to us for 45 minutes, maybe do one more song, and then coffee and donuts. Like, why do we do this whoa, whoa, whoa. every coffee Sunday? Coffee and donuts are staple. Okay. Uh, right, but that's not in the scripture, Lee. I, I, you're right. I'm sorry. And so, like, if this is not, like, laid out in the Bible, why are we doing it? Well, Acts, you know, we could we could go back. And forth. Well, of course. Whether they had donuts there, I don't know, but of course. But you know, there were some Protestant reformers who said, "Hey, musical instruments are not mentioned in the New Testament, therefore we should not be using them in wow. New Testament worship." So that's like Zwingli and stuff. Mm. Anyway, okay. So I want to teach this, so I start doing some research, and I know I wanted to teach the Anglican mm. stuff, like some of the old hymns. And why we worship the way we do. Because right. I saw in the Anglican liturgy some of the contours of what we we're doing in the evangelical church. But I thought, I want to do this complete. So where did the Anglicans get this from? Oof. So I start going further back. There's the question. And eventually I hit the Mass, the Catholic Mass, which 
I had never looked at before in all of my studies because to me, Catholics were not Christians. We're the devil. We're not. You're not the devil. You're just pagans. Pagans, yeah. You don't know what you're. What Idolaters. You, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And like I've joked with you before, you know, Catholics, you're over across the street playing bingo, <laughs> you know, having social dances. That's it. I'm like, that's that's not good. That's, mm. but but Mother Teresa, Saint uh, Saint John Paul II, those they looked pretty good. Yeah. But um, for the most part, Catholics didn't know what they were doing. In my mind, they weren't even in another Christian right. denomination. So I was stunned by the Mass. I thought, this Mass is beautiful. So biblical. So rooted in Jewish liturgy that goes all the way back to what was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. And I could recognize this as a student of Scripture. It's like, wow, this right. is awesome. This is the source, the wellspring this is the absolute deep end of Christianity right here in terms of worship. Yeah. However, I knew that I could not teach this to anyone unless I also was able to remind them why we could never be Catholic. Mm. Like they may worship beautifully and biblically, yep. but they're so very wrong on these other issues like, you know, like the greatest hits, like, oh, purgatory. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mary. Mary, that's yeah. right. Uh, praying to dead people. Yeah, communion like, of saints, yep. That's right. All the things that I I had heard over the years misrepresented to me. So I thought, if I'm going to teach this, I got to teach that. I got to also just teach a few of these greatest hits. So I went to the bookstore and looked for a source where I could teach people why Catholics are wrong. And this was my... Fatal Error, or the <laughs> Oh Happy Fault. Um, the book I found was called The Catechism of the Catholic Church. Oh, boy. And it even had the great little helpful index at the back mm -hmm. with all of the teachings in alphabetical order. Uh, that I was like, I'm going to be done today. Yep. This is the easiest uh, research I've ever done. Um, and so I started reading, and one by one, these teachings became more clear, and they were not what I thought. They were so rooted in scripture and and tradition. They they rang so true. And I just kept reading. I read the whole thing back to back. And um, in the end, I realized that I had to become Catholic. I didn't know how. I had never been to Mass. I didn't know any Catholics very well and um, didn't quite know what the process was, but I knew that I had to go home. It felt like home. And I think it's a uh, St. Uh, John Henry Newman, who said, to be steeped in history is to cease being Protestant. And that's what happened to me. Yeah. The deeper I got into history, the more I realized that it was folly for me to be anywhere but where I, where I came from, mm. from my home, from, the play, from my family. Right. So that's, that's in the very short version of how I came to the Catholic Church, right. but um, I had already been in love with Jesus, and actually my parents, when I taught, when I broached this with them, they were so supportive. They just said, as long as you're following Jesus, as long as you love Jesus, we are behind you 100%. So um, I did not experience sort of the isolation or alienation that often comes. Sure. Because as I told as I told my family, as I continue to tell my family, twenty years now it's been almost, I say, I did not convert to some new religion. I just followed Jesus into the deep end of Christianity. I have I, I am converting in the sense of every day turning more deeply to him. Right. But I'm I didn't switch religions or anything. Right. And uh I think that they've seen it over the years that that's that is true. Yeah, and like it, it kind of speaks into the whole, you know, being saved, right? Like, right. Salvation is alive. Yes, it's not some um, archaeological discovery in the past of my life, but it's a relationship. I think that's the key. It's like salvation is a relationship. Right. It's a friendship. So I don't just say I became friends with Lee. I say, I became friends with Lee. I am a friend with Lee, and we are going to be friends forever until until the time we are not friends. Until that one time, <laughs> no. yeah. But like, I mean, the relationship just continues to deepen. Yeah. 
um, as the relationship deepens. So I right. love that. Beautiful story. Praise the Lord. You found the, you found him in truth. You found him in this very, you know, small book, this small little white book. It's a brick. It's a little brick. So anyway, you found the Lord in this little brick, this little brick, the, the, which basically was your key to the deep end. Um, all the right. footnotes, all the, the indexes, the, the saints, the wisdom, the tradition, all of that. But the Eucharist, was there ever a moment where you, you said, okay, this, this, oh my gosh, Lord, you were actually there. Now, I knew about the Eucharist. Okay. I knew what the Catholics taught about the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And I did not put two and two together when I was falling in love with the Mass. Mm. It's really interesting. The Eucharist was sort of a point of contention for me mm-hmm. because I thought, hey, I'm Christian. I'm baptized. Right. I love Jesus. Why aren't Catholics letting me receive the Eucharist? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I being turned away? Like, that that offended me. Mm. It sort of made me angry. But I didn't quite understand what the Eucharist was. This, Or I should say who the Eucharist was. Because that's that's the key to all of this, um, and really Jesus present in the Eucharist is present in a humble, a simple, and a silent way. Like doesn't draw attention to himself, mm. and yet everything the liturgy, the churches, the beautiful um, architecture, everything is there because of the Eucharist. It's all pointing to the Eucharist, but it's like I didn't have eyes to see it. Mm. I remember in Hong Kong, before I knew anything, I was just reading the Catechism, and it was so fast-paced and busy and loud in Hong Kong. Um, I had an apartment right there in, on the Hong Kong island. In the We call it the mid-levels. There's these escalators that go all the way up the mountain, mm. um, and it's just high-rises. You can't see the sky except by looking straight up because wow. you're just surrounded by buildings. And I would go on walks, And I remember one day, and I kid you not, this is not an exaggeration. I was just going on a random walk. I didn't know where I was going. I would sometimes just follow alleyways to see where it would take me. Because you discover these little treasures, little hole-in-the-wall noodle places, things like that. So I'm walking around, and I come around a corner into this cramped little alley. And it opens up suddenly into like a courtyard Hmm. surrounded by tall skyscrapers. And in the middle of this courtyard is a giant gothic white cathedral. Wow. Like dwarfed, like you would not be able to see it. Right. Like one, at one point it was probably the most beautiful thing there, but now it's What's all it been called? covered. It's a uh, cathedral. I think it's called of the Immaculate Conception in uh, Hong Kong Island. I'm looking it up right okay, now. Okay. Look it's... it up. It's in my memory. It was this pristine, white, beautiful cathedral. And I opened up the big doors and I just went inside. I didn't know what oh, wow. what it was, hmm. um, but I would just go in, and I, and I would just sit there, and it was so quiet in the cathedral, so loud out in the city, and all the lights are off, and it would just be, you could wow. hear like the wind, and I felt so much comfort that I would go back there after I found it. It was like my secret little hideaway. I would go back over and over just to sit in the silence of that cathedral. Wow. And it wasn't until later, like years later, that I reflected back and realized that I was there not just because of the silence, but because he was there. Hmm. And I didn't know, and yet I was still drawn to him. Yeah. And I just wanted to be with him. My whole life I felt like I was in a long-distance relationship with Jesus. Hmm. You know, I'm reading about him. You know, uh, I'm praying to him, but it felt like leaving messages on an answering machine. Sure. You know, like it, I loved him, but it felt like we were at a distance. You had letters. Letters, exactly. And when I became Catholic and when I received the Eucharist for the first time, and it began there in that cathedral, like as I'm mm. approaching him, when I received the Eucharist, it was like coming off an airplane and embracing someone you've been writing letters to your whole life. Wow. Like it was so... It was no longer a long-distance relationship. It was a relationship in which I'm in physical contact yeah. with the person that I love. And um, Wow. Yeah. Did you have your first communion there? No. Um, I became Catholic in California. Cali. Yeah. So it was a couple years later, and that was at St. Martin de Porres Catholic Church in Yorba Linda. 
Cool. Um, where I later um, worked for a while also. Nice. Wow. Yeah, I'm just looking at these pictures, and yeah, this place built in 1843. Okay, so those skyscrapers are newer than that. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, I'm seeing these pictures on Wikipedia, and there's nothing around it. It's just this giant, beautiful church in the middle of nowhere. And now the modern pictures, it's like you said, just absolutely dwarfed by all these skyscrapers, these high rises. And yeah. you will not find it. It's not like by a road. Like you have to walk through buildings to find it. Yeah, it's like Rivendell. You know, like it's like a <laughs> yeah, the hidden point. valley, the right. last homely house. Wow! So it's awesome. What advice would you give to anybody out there who um, might be on the fence with respect to the Eucharist? Well, I guess I guess I would say, if it is Jesus, then that's the most important, the single most important thing in the world, mm. because. That is Jesus himself coming as food to be present and a, a source of nourishment and strength for you, for you. Um, if it isn't Jesus, then Catholics are idolaters. I mean, it, it's, yep. it's as simple as that. I mean, you cannot be like, well, I like Catholics, A, B, and C, but I'm not sure about the Eucharist. And I tell this to my Protestant family and my friends. I'm like, listen, let's just... Let's just be real. Um, it's either God or it's an idol that we worship. Um, there's no in-between there. Like the scripture makes it very clear. We should not be worshiping bread. Um, but we do. Catholics are all in, 100% consistent. They're like, if that is God, we are down on our faces in front of him. Mm -hmm. um, and it looks like humble bread, um, but right. it is, in essence, substance, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ— this is key. St. Thomas Aquinas said this. He said, if you get in a time machine, and I'm kind of uh, paraphrasing Thomas Aquinas. Kind of. <laughs> I don't think he time ever machine. said. But if you got into a DeLorean, St. Thomas Aquinas said, right. and went back uh, to, you know, around 30 AD uh, to Golgotha on Good Friday, and you stood at the foot of the cross, and I'm paraphrasing the, the Pangolingua, by the way. Nice. <laughs> and you stood at the foot of the cross, and you looked at Jesus— um, all you would see with your human eyes is a beaten, bloody, dying man. That's what you'd see. Mm -hmm. There would be no hint at all to the fact that this is the God who made the universe. You would not be able to see his divinity. You're only able to see his humanity. There, there was people who stood at the foot of the cross on that day, human beings who were beyond blessed to be there in the moment when God was reconciling humanity to himself. And they didn't believe. They spit on him. Mm -hmm. They thought he was just a man. Mocking him, yep. But now, he's like, today, in the Eucharist, even his humanity is hidden. Not his, just his divinity, but also his humanity. But he is still there for those who have faith. Like, um, I am not like Thomas, who can reach out and touch, but I do still want to have faith in the words that yeah. Jesus said. So... Um, that's the pangolingua, the tanta merigo, the idea that uh, that even though he is hidden from us, he is still fully present with us. And what and what Jesus says, what God says, happens. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and Jesus made it super clear. I mean, unless you gnaw on my flesh, chew on me, then you will not have life. And this John 6, right, it's famous. That's when, like, most of the, his disciples left him. Not just the people who are listening and wanting free bread from the multiplication of the loaves, right. but some of the people who are his disciples leave him because the teaching is too hard, and Jesus lets them go. And then he even doubles down and turns around to the 12 and says, do you want to go too? Like, he, he could have easily said, listen, this is just a parable, this is just a metaphor, yeah. this is just—I mean, and we know that— he did not do that because this was so key. This was always the plan. Right from the, the Garden of Eden with the Tree of Life, that, that food, the very reason that God made us to be hungry at all. Yeah. I would say, according to everything that I've read, he made us for eating because of the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was actually thinking just recently, uh, it's in Deuteronomy, chapter 8, because I was thinking about this this podcast, New Manna, right? Mm -hmm. And manna, 
in the wilderness. What is it? Like, what's going on? What What is it? There exactly. Go. I get it. Um, that's what manna means. You've probably talked about it on it's this show. It's Hebrew. It literally means what? what is it? What is this? Yeah. yeah. So when we think about manna in the wilderness, it's like, why did God choose to feed his people in this way? It's such a strange way. When he had the ability to send quails into the camp, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that's what I would prefer. But this idea of bread from heaven. Yeah. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that God actually caused the people to be hungry. He wanted them to be hungry. He brought them to a wilderness where they could not feed themselves so that they would have to rely on him every day for miraculous food that they could not deny that came from anywhere but him. And to make it even more obvious— like once a week on on the seventh day, it didn't come. Mm -hmm. So it would come for six days extra on day six and then nothing on day seven. Mm -hmm. And God also made it so that it would go bad every day. You only have enough for that. You could not only take what you need. You could not store up more than you, than you needed for the day. He wanted you to keep being hungry. He wants us to be able to, learn yeah. that he is all we need. To turn to him for total providence, kind of like right. your parents did. I'm thinking about how it's it's on the tree of good and evil, like the knowledge of good and evil, right, that Adam and Eve, that they fell, and that they they picked the fruit off of the tree. The point is, is that Jesus, God, he knew that we are not <laughs> trustworthy <laughs> to go and like pick the fruit ourselves anymore. And yet, before he's on the tree... He gives him, He gives us this new food, this new fruit, before he goes onto the tree, the tree, the cross. I just I'm I'm seeing this parallels of like oh it's what's in the middle it's God giving us His very self. I mean, what is food? And so what I I would sometimes ask kids when I'm teaching them about the Eucharist, why do we eat? It seems like an obvious question, but I like to ask it and get them to talk about it. It's like well we eat. To stay alive. Sustenance. We need to eat. We're designed to eat. And what is eating exactly? It is taking something that was alive, and all the food we eat is alive. We can trace all of it back to something that is alive. Fruit roll-ups? Eventually, if you go back, <laughs> Far you get to some sugar cane. There you go. And I don't know where red dye number five comes yeah, from, but me. everything comes from something that was alive. And we're eating something, the fresher the better, and that life... And that food is transferred to us. It becomes part of our life. And St. Augustine, he's the one who says that it's like, and I'm paraphrasing again, when you're eating that steak, you know, mm-hmm. the cow, it's a, like a contest between the cow and you. And you are stronger than the cow. You take that steak, you put it in your body, and the life that was in that steak is now your life. It becomes you. It becomes you. This is why we eat. So then consider the Eucharist. Jesus comes to us as food that is not just fresh, but is alive now, resurrected body of Christ, Mm -hmm. not the crucified dead body of Christ, the resurrected, glorified substance of, of Christ, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ given to us as food. And St. Augustine would say, who's the stronger in that equation? You know, you or the one who made the universe Hmm. and is holding you in existence right now. It's like, it's him. So what happens? It's not that his life becomes, it's not that he becomes you, like his life becomes yours. You assimilate him, but you actually become him. Mm -hmm. Like you are enfolded in his life. And that's what Pope Benedict XVI said is the climax of the mass. It's not the consecration when the bread and wine are miraculously changed, right. body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It is actually when we receive the Eucharist, yeah. we become the body of Christ, and then are dismissed where we get the word mass, misa, to be sent. Yep. That's the point. Wow. We're being changed so that we can be sent um, into the world as his hands and feet. Yeah, that's the—you think about true miracle, right? Okay, what's the true miracle? Nothing's miraculous. I mean— just hear me out. There's nothing miraculous about God doing something 
okay? Like, God is God, okay? And he can do whatever he wants, and it's not miraculous. According to his nature. Yeah, right. it's it's natural for him. It's not supernatural. I, I get hung up. People get hung up on this a lot. Like, oh, he's supernatural. It's like, there's nothing more natural than creation obeying its creator. So, the crazy thing, the miracle, the true miracle, like you're saying, like Pope Benedict said, is us becoming God little by little. And that moment that we receive God Un, like into ourselves, our very selves, into our persons. Like that is like, that's transformation. That's renewal. That's revival. That's everything. Divinization, right? Like we become partakers of the divine nature. But here, here's another really important thing that happens. When I receive the Eucharist, we are, it's like a wedding, right? The early church fathers speak about receiving the Eucharist as like a consummation of marriage. Mm. It's as intimate as the marital act. We become one with Christ. When we receive the Eucharist, we're so profoundly united to him. All division ceases, and we become one with him in the Eucharist. Well, if that's true, if I'm becoming one with Christ, and then you, Lee, are receiving the Eucharist, and you are becoming one with Christ, right? the natural conclusion then is that Lee and I are also becoming profoundly united yes. in Christ. We become one body in Christ. And you mentioned reconciliation earlier. Sin causes division, scattering, broken relationships. We are all at odds with each other, and you just have to look at the news for 10 seconds to see the results of sin in our world. Just division, animosity, hatred. The Eucharist is a foretaste of that heavenly banquet, in which all will be brought together. Yeah. And um, we we are reconciled. We are made one in Christ. Yeah. That's awesome. And the it's we have to it's a process that's learned, right? It's I mean, you think about this, I mean take this all analogies fail if you take them to their limit, but the idea being that, okay, some of us are the left leg of Christ, some of us are the right arm. It's like <laughs> if we want to dance in concert with the Lord in his kingdom, it's like it takes time. You know, it's okay. Like, we can still be united and reconciled with one another and still everything, I don't know, like, it not immediately. Everything's just going to be fine and perfect as soon as we have, you know, we receive the Eucharist again. Right, there's still diversity. Yeah. We're, we're not the Borg. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're like one collective consciousness. Although mm. sometimes when we say the creed at Mass, I do think of the Borg a little bit. It's I don't like, know what the Borg is. I believe in God the Father. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Star Trek The Next Generation? Nope, not a Star Trek guy. I'm so sorry. It's all right. You don't need to apologize. Um, okay. But those there are people out there who know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But we are not the Borg. You are not assimilated into some sort of collective consciousness mm. in which all individual, individuality is erased. Yeah. No, we are truly unique individuals, yeah. all with our own gifts, but we serve to build up this body of Christ, yeah. which is sort of the perfection of humanity, us gathered together. The Borg kind of sounds like the the Buddhist teaching of just oh, the total annihilation like a drop in the ocean and yeah. you kind of disappear. Yeah, you're gone forever. Yeah, and it's like the ultimate bad guy in Star Trek. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we don't want that. Um, the good guy, the good version, is the Vulcan philosophy, infinite diversity and infinite comp- combinations. Mm. <laughs> I trust. It sounds so, amazing. I mean, and they just kind of stole that from Christianity. It's like right. we, are, we are so diverse— gathered together um, from all nations, yeah. many tongues, but we all bow our knees together at the name of Christ, Yeah, um, bound together into one body. Amen. Well, thanks for sharing about your story and for you know sharing your advice to anybody out there who might be on the fence with respect to the Eucharist. I would just say, you know, keep leaning in. Like, if you're listening to this and you're on the fence, or if you're listening to this and you, you, you know somebody who's on the fence, like, just encourage them. You know, we, we are called to be the body of Christ, and wherever there's you know, encouragement, consolation, and building one another up like we were living in the Spirit. So that's the, that's the call is to, to keep um, doing that as much as we can, please. And let me just add, uh, the fruit, the evidence of the Eucharist is how we live our life. Mm. So um, let me, this is not to all those people on the fence. This is all those people who are interacting with people on the fence. Mm-hmm. Do you truly allow the Eucharist to shape your life? You know, has Jesus really changed you? Is he really involved in every decision that you make? Um, is he the most important relationship that you have? Yeah. Um, that is the only way 
we're going to be able to communicate the true power yeah. of Christ coming to us under the appearance of bread and wine in the Eucharist. If we if we if we are not changed, then we can talk yeah. theology all we want, and we're never going to convince anyone. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about uh, piggy banks. Like piggy banks are clay or ceramic or whatever. They're clay at once. Jars of at, clay. <laughs> at once, at once upon a time, they were soft and moldable. Yeah. And yet something happened to where they can do nothing other than just receive a little coin. They've got a coin slot, and that's it. You know you know what could fit in that piggy bank coin slot? Yahweh? The Eucharist. Yeah. <laughs> Point being that are we just, yeah, are we just little piggy banks rolling around, like, receiving our Eucharist? And, like, guess what's happening, though? Nothing. Well, that's true. The disposition of the heart makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, here's another analogy for you. God is like a fire. You know, the light, the heat, um, that he's coming to us. Mm. Um, but that same fire could melt wax and harden clay. Mm. It's like God's coming. His love, his mercy is coming for you. But depending on the disposition of your heart, right. you're either going to get hardened like Pharaoh, yep. Yep. stubborn, resistant, or you're going to soften yep. like Moses. You know, allow him to work, allow right. him to change you. It's the disposition of the heart. God himself does not change. God's love and mercy is so constant. Constant. Let's go. So what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to that love? Somebody once told me that adoration, going to adoration in front of the Eucharist, to worship in front of our Lord, is like going and sitting in front of a fire with ice sort of encasing Mm. your heart. And you just need to sit there and let him melt that ice. Let him melt it away. Um, and it, it takes time. Yep. It's not immediate, but um, surrender to him. That's right. And you'll be changed forever. Yeah, just let him in. I think now would be a great time to transition into the second part of our conversation today. Oh, on this two. This here document called, we're, we're starting a new document today. It's called Sacra Tridentina. I think that's how you say it. I'm not fluent in Latin. All you, uh, all you church folk out there can correct me. But So this document was written by Pope Pius X on December 20th of good old 1905. Okay, this is before World War I even happened. This document is on the frequent and daily reception of Holy Communion. Because up until this point, people were almost scared to receive the Eucharist sometimes. Like it was, get your Easter Eucharist and do your best not to sin. And when you do go to confession, but point being here though, he comes and he speaks. He speaks to the church. We can receive. We are encouraged. Why? Because he says this in the, in the third paragraph. He says, Moreover, it is the desire of Jesus Christ and of the church uh, that all the faithful should daily approach the sacred banquet is directed chiefly to this end, that the faithful, being united to God by means of the sacrament, may thence derive strength to resist their sensual passions, to cleanse themselves from the stains of daily faults, and to avoid the graver sins which human frailty is, is liable to. So, that's kind of the whole point of this document. He's going to unpack that over 10 paragraphs here. Um, Curtis, yeah, any any general thoughts before we jump into our greatest hits? Well, that's interesting that the chief end, like that we're, the sacred banquet that we're being directed to, is chiefly so that we can have the strength to resist, to cleanse, and to avoid. Like this, this is why we receive the Eucharist. Mm. Um, notice that this is not the chief end of the liturgy. This is the chief end of why we receive the Eucharist, mm. um, which I think there's there's a difference there because whereas we are obligated as Catholics to go to Mass on every Sunday and Holy Day of Obligation, mm-hmm. we are not obligated to receive the Eucharist every time, although we are um, encouraged, strongly yeah. encouraged. But that just points out that the liturgy— the point of the liturgy is not necessarily that you receive the Eucharist every time, mm. which that was the other extreme that Pope Pius X is speaking about. Right. Like there's some who's like, I can never receive the Eucharist. And there's some people who are like, I deserve to receive the Eucharist. Like, I'm going to yeah, receive right. it whenever I want. Yeah. It's like, no, we're, we're going to be somewhere in between. Yeah. You don't have to receive the Eucharist, but when you do, this is why. Right. To strengthen, to cleanse, and to avoid Right. Like this is food for us, just like any food that helps us in this journey through the wilderness of right. life. Yeah, we get to unite ourselves with you know to Christ in the sacrifice of the Holy Mass. I love this because the second 
second sentence, if you can call it that. It's one giant sentence um, because people back in the day knew how to write well. Anyway, he said this. He says, to carry on, he says, so that its primary purpose, a.k.a. Mass, the, the Holy Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, so that its primary purpose is not that the honor and reverence due to our Lord may be safeguarded or that it may serve as a reward or recompense of virtue bestowed on the recipients. He says, the Holy Council calls the Eucharist the antidote whereby we may be freed from daily faults and preserved from mortal sin. Mm. Like, I love that. Because it's like, hey, guys, the whole Eucharist thing is not to preserve, <laughs> not to pres- is not to honor and, and revere our Lord. Not that that might be safeguarded as if it was like ever in danger. But the point is, it's for us. In the bestowal of this greatest gift, there's no greater sacrificial gift of worship unto the Father than the Holy Eucharist. Just to, Is that clear? I don't want that to be misleading. Right. Well, what the Eucharist is is a fulfillment of what we see in the Old Testament when it comes to the peace offerings. Mm. So a peace offering is like a Kansas City barbecue mm. where you would take a, a sacrificial animal yeah. and you would offer it to God. Right. So it's, it's being drawn upwards. You see the smoke going upwards, this symbolic offering yeah. up to God. But then you would also take parts of that animal and the priests... And the people would eat it, mm. um, which represented the fact that they were now sharing a meal together yeah. with God, like that there was this reconciliation, this peace right. that was happening between them. And so the Eucharist is absolutely offered, Jesus offers himself in the Eucharist, an unbloody sacrifice, united um, to that eternal moment right. on the cross. It's being offered. yeah. Um, but at the same time, we are receiving it. It's right. this this meal, this banquet. And I love that line that it's an antidote because what does that um, hint at? The fact that we're all poisoned. Yeah. We're being poisoned every day. We are ingesting poison in this world. And the Eucharist is the only way that we're going to be saved. Right. And what did Jesus say? Like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. So to those who look upon he, yeah. That's right. The, yeah. I am the antidote to right. all of those bites right. that you're getting every day. Yeah. Um, and so woe to you if you think you don't need an antidote. Yeah. You will perish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was sadly reflecting on the fact the other day, I was just like, man, everywhere I go, I spend money. I have to, I'm just like, money's just, it's just Money everywhere. makes the world go round. And then finally I'm on the road thinking that, okay, I've just got some time to breathe. I take the, I take I-70, so I'm on the, I'm on the toll road. I'm like, God, oh, it just never stops. <laughs> I'm just bleeding money all the way. The same way it goes for us in, in, in grace, though. We leak grace, we leak. And man, you know, sometimes we're not the most uh, forthright in making sure that we're getting replenished. Well, you mentioned grace and you know, Sometimes we get into the habit of talking about grace like it's something God gives us. Like it's something that that God, it's like a little package Mm. that God has wrapped and he's handing it to us. Here's some grace. Pope Benedict XVI said that at its root, grace is not something that God gives us. It is God given to us. Mm. It's himself given to us. It's relational. Right. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Yeah. Uncreated grace, right? Um, grace is a gift of God himself. And so anytime we begin to turn away from him, to, to chase after things that are not him, that's the leak that you're talking about, that yeah. slow leak. And the Eucharist, I mean, what, what better way is there to, re- to turn away from all those other things, the poison, and to return to the antidote, Pope Francis said it, and I love it. He yeah. said the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, yep. but medicine for the sick. You know, uh, yep. it's so true. Yeah, it's medicine, the medicine of immortality. I think that's Ignatius, one of the Ignatius. Sub- but yeah. it is important to note that doesn't mean that we are free to receive it when we're in the state of mortal sin. Right. Because uh, uh, when you're in the state of mortal sin— that means you've kicked God out of your life. Yeah. You have turned against him in a willful act done with full knowledge and consent. Yeah. And when you've done that kind of act of betrayal, it is not correct to go into uh, some sort right. of that intimate consummation, which is the Eucharist. It's like if I um, betrayed my wife, if I was unfaithful to my wife right. and then came home and said, 
okay, it's time for our weekly uh, intimacy. Yeah. Without any reconciliation, that would just make things worse. As St. Paul says, heap condemnation upon my head. Yeah. So although the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, it does presume that you are in the relationship. Right. And but you're just, you're not perfect. It doesn't, it's, the Eucharist is not going to um, help you if you are dead. Right. You need to be resurrected in the Sacrament of Reconciliation first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what are some of your greatest hits from this document here? I think uh, one of the, the things that really stood out to me was when they they do a list, this numbered list um, of like the things that they're declaring in this document. And that very first one, number one, frequent and daily communion as a practice most earnestly desired by Christ and by the Church should be open to all the faithful of whatever rank and condition of life so that no one who is in the state of grace and who approaches the holy table with a right and devout intention can be prohibited yeah. therefrom. Now, this is key because, remember, this document's addressing two extremes. One saying, you never, you should never, you're never worthy to receive it. Right. And the other one saying, ah, it's, what's the big deal? And this sort of towing the line right in the middle says, no, no one should be prohibited from receiving it if you are in the state of grace in relationship with God and you're approaching with the right and devout intention. You know, that you're not approaching haphazardly or thinking you deserve it, but you're coming forward with a contrite heart, recognizing what this gift is that's been given you. I mean, that makes all the difference in the world. And I, I, I wish I could just shake some people awake. Yeah. Because we talk about the faith like it's some sort of a moral system, like some, some, some kind of a philosophy. Mm. Like if you just follow these rules— I'll get my token? Yeah. If oh. you just follow these rules, you're going to be good. And you even hear people say, I'm a good person, so why don't I get to go to heaven? Right. And that's the same mindset. Like so the Catholic Church is just a bunch of rules— and if you've cracked the code and you follow the rules, you have all these things. You have the right intention. I'm in the state of grace. Therefore, I can receive communion. Therefore, I'll go to heaven. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of the parable Jesus says at the end of time, people will stand before him at the judgment seat and say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name and heal the sick in mm -hmm. your name and prophesy? And Jesus will say, depart from me. You evildoers. Why? I never knew you. I never knew you. That's what this is all about. When it says state of grace and a, and a devout um, and right intention, it's speaking about a relationship. And we are not followers of some philosophy or moral yeah. code. We are followers of a person with a face who comes to encounter us. Yeah, That's what Christianity is. And if you are seeking after him with your whole heart, if you want to be with him and, and you're struggling, you're tripping, you're falling— you're making mistakes, but you just love, you just want to be with him. You keep getting up. He keeps helping you up. Yeah. Then then you should not be prohibited from receiving the right. Eucharist. I mean, that's... Because it is him. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, I mean, what is a saint? A saint is somebody who never stopped saying yes to God. Like, a saint is someone who says yes to God and never stops saying yes. Like, if you find yourself face down on the ground, flattened by the world, flattened by etc. Just look up, get up, and keep saying yes to him, yes to his grace. Because Catholicism, like, our faith does not, is not a faith that's lived inside the meat locker. Like, <laughs> it's not a meat locker faith, folks, okay? <laughs> yeah, I need more explanation. <laughs> well, it's just cold, yes. still. Delicious. No, sorry. <laughs> not yet. But you know what I mean? It's just this, um, We it's a lived relationship. You know, you don't live your relationship mm. just in, you know, standing, going through life, in proximity to one another, it's like, no, that's not a relationship. That's uh, proximity. I don't know. No, but relationship is messy. Yeah. Relationship is—it infects all the parts of your life. I, I When I'm tell, teaching people about holiness, for example, talking about saints, I use the analogy of my wife again. I'm always talking about my wife, my awesome, beautiful, amazing wife, Amy, that she has changed my life. I am now holy to Amy— like, I'm set apart for her. Yeah. All of my decisions um, are different now that I'm a husband and a father. 
Because of my relationship to Amy, everything else has changed. I'm not doing the same things I used to do because I want to be with her. I want to, you know, we're going to decide if we're going to move here. We are going to decide that together. We're going to decide, is this the right job for us? Right. And go on and on and on. That in a, is a picture of what holiness is. Yeah. A saint, their most important relationship is with Christ and everything in their life, everything is touched by that relationship. Yeah. That's the goal for all of us. Yeah, true holiness is is not just saying, okay, some of me or some of this is set apart for a holy purpose for God, but it's everything. Everything is to I, my life is a is a sacrifice to be made holy, to be made holy um, for God because I He called me His own and I am His and He deserves all of me. Like even spouses, that's why our first and foremost relationship is with the Lord, and like. From that relationship with God, then, you know, we find our spousal relationship. And from that flows then our relationship with our children. And from that then flows and directs, uh, you know, our relationship with the professional world, et cetera. But, uh, and then yeah. heaven, heaven is not a reward for being a good person. Heaven is union with the one that you love, with, with God. Yeah. You're united with him. Yeah. And that's the only reason you can say that the Eucharist is a foretaste of heaven. Mm -hmm. Just like manna in the wilderness tasted of honey was a foretaste of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Mm -hmm. They were tasting the promised land every day that they wandered in the wilderness. And the Eucharist is a foretaste of heaven. It's it's only a foretaste of heaven if you understand that heaven is not a place, Mm -hmm. but it's union with a person. Yeah. That's why in the Our Father at Mass, that's why I bow my head when we say our daily bread, because that's because I know that this is the Lord. Like the Lord's present here. We say there Our Father after the consecration, mm. and He He's already here with us. Like we're actually praying to the Father in heaven with Jesus Christ. It's not a oh we're we're doing this as church and this is great because we're holding hands and this is all fun. <laughs> But no, I don't hold like, hands with anybody. <laughs> good for you. Good for you. Sweaty hand holding. I know, right? Yeah. Any other of these stick out to you? Well, I love that phrase in number two recourse to this divine remedy for weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, again, just the visceral like nature of the Eucharist as food. Christ coming to us as food, as a, a remedy for weakness. Like when I'm weak, like, man, a sandwich would really hit the spot right now, you know, Mm. like physically weak. And Jesus is saying, yes, just like that, I want to be sustenance for you. Mm. I want to sustain you with my own life. I don't want to just give you food. I want to be your food. Mm. What? And I feel like we talk about it so much as Catholics that we don't hear it anymore. Mm. Like, did you hear that? He wants to be your food. Mm. How could he want to humble himself to the point of like actually being food? Mm. But, but I mean, we spiritualize everything, right? Yeah. But I think that this is this is true, both uh, remedy for spiritual and for physical weakness. Mm. He wants to sustain the whole you. Yeah. Not just the spiritual you. Yep. The whole you. All of you, yeah. And there's some talk here about uh, Acts, Acts of the Apostles. How um, you know this document references how it was it was a daily it was a daily gathering. It was a daily breaking of the bread that they that they did this together every single day that they broke bread together. It wasn't just breaking bread like oh kumbaya. They were celebrating <laughs> the Holy Eucharist. They were celebrating Mass together, together. And this was a, a thing that he said um, was just lost on the later church. As, as things became privatized and uh, reference was lost and whatnot. Well, yeah, but, I mean, it's natural because as you, as you grow in your knowledge of the Eucharist, I mean, if we really knew and believed what the Eucharist was, we would be crawling on our hands and knees yeah. to receive the Eucharist. I mean, Jesus is so gracious and merciful that he comes to us in such a humble way, mm. but then we forget. And so you have people who are on fire— who are saying, no, 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 this is God. And see, the pendulum begins to swing. It's like, well, if that's God, then I don't want, I, I can't, I can't, I can't. And so this is uh, one of the beautiful things of our church and the papacy um, that 
we have been given uh, this sort of infallible, like protected guide who can come in like a referee and be like, okay, hold on, hold on. There's some debate here. Let me settle it for you. And beautifully and with clarity, able to yeah. lay out in this document mm -hmm. that sort of middle way that it's like, yes, you can receive if these conditions are met, but everyone is welcome. You know, like that is so awesome and beautiful. Right. Yeah, I, I just love that. It really hits home, really, really hits home that we sin. <laughs> and it's not it's not a way that's distasteful. It's 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 nice. He does it in a way that's like, hey, look, I get it. We get it. Venial sin's a thing. Like I speed sometimes and I don't realize it. And then when I realize it, maybe I don't stop. And it's like, okay, I need to get better about that. And whatever. It's just like that's one of many examples. Like I'm impatient with my kids, you know, whatever. Like, oh, it happened again. The point he says in three is like the daily communicants should gradually through this reception should will gradually just free themselves from these types of sins and the uh, all the affections hitherto hitherto being those associated with those stemming from said sin at, you know that's kind of just I love that like from from here on out um yeah, yeah. that there's actual yeah. fruit that if you receive the Eucharist more regularly with that de devotion and proper disposition of your heart right you will be changed. Yeah. You will no longer sin. Wait, you will no longer sin? Like, I, I feel like we should put that like on a billboard or Hello. something. Because, and once again, see, we have to correct our, our right. notion of sin. Right. It's not just a breaking of a rule. It's not just like I'm an addict and so I do these things. No, when you see sin right. as relational and a betrayal and a breaking of relationship, you see how the Eucharist is a remedy that keeps us connected right. and united to Christ. If we do that every day, every day, our daily bread, uh, following him more closely each right. day, you can see how sin begins to fade into the background and eventually disappear. Yeah. It's awesome. Amen. This is such. This is a very short document, and it's very readable, which is surprising because it was written in 1905. So I just want to say, read it. I want to know if religious communities are still reading this every year in the octave of the Feast of Corpus Christi. Did you see that at the end? They're supposed to. It says you need to read this out loud. The superior of each house will read this document out mm. loud. It makes me wonder, like, was there a lot of controversy going on in these mm. religious communities? But that I thought that was really cool. And then number nine, he brings the hammer down. All ecclesiastical writers are to cease from contentious controversy concerning the dispositions requisite for frequent and daily communion. Yeah. He's like, and no more arguments. Yeah. I love it. End of We're story. We're done. Cease and desist. Yeah. It's a great that's And a great here word. we are, uh, Bickering. 118 years later, still Doing talking about his Doing exactly that. But we're talking about his documents, so it's great. Yeah. So this is hopefully going to cut that out. And if you're one of those folks out there who's really just, you know, been out of shape about the whole on the hand on the hand, on the tongue kind of thing then i would refer you to our, our our national conference of catholic bishops we are called to be faithful unto their jurisdiction and they say both are great so as long as the disposition of the heart correct is great yep come with the proper pre preparation and make sure there's plenty of time for the proper amount of thanksgiving so if anything it's a call on us you know before we pick up a stone to put a mirror in our hand and really just check ourselves Curtis, thanks for being on here. Thanks for your fatherhood. Thanks for your, your, um, it's your fire. I just see that you got this fire and I, I really appreciate it. Been great to be here. I just want to say thanks for tuning in today. I hope this episode has blessed you. If it has, please share it with those in your spheres of influence. If you haven't yet left a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do so. This has been New Mana. We'll see you next week. God bless.